Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I'm hosting our discussions of the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, frankly speaking, welcomes Lena Bjorn-Serpa, Head of Corporate Sustainability and ESG at the Danish-based transport and logistics company AP Molomersk, which operates the largest container shipping fleet in the world. In the last year, the company brought forward its net zero pledge by 10 years and has now ordered 13 carbon zero e-methanol ocean-going vessels for its fleet, the first of which will be operating from as soon as next year. Lena herself has led the company's sustainability efforts for the past 12 years. She's chair of the UN Global Compact Network in Denmark. In a serious written piece about ESG data, Lena wrote, I'm proud to be a tree hugger. And her biography says one of her responsibilities is trend spotting. Lena, welcome to Frankly Speaking. And are we going to spot some trends today? Thank you so much, uh, Richard. Well, I hope so. Let's uh, let's see. That's a good challenge uh, for us. Um, and uh, and and certainly, um, there's so much happening in the sustainability ESG space uh, at the moment that um, trying to keep track of all the trends and developments can be a little overwhelming these days. But you are one of the best people to do it. Now, before we get into today and tomorrow, um, I often ask this of my guests. So you're, you know, you're a deeply experienced sustainability professional. Where did it all start? What, what got you into sustainability in the first place in your life? Um, think back and tell us what that breakthrough moment was. All right. Well, that was quite some years ago. Um, so I first started working with uh, sustainability and uh, stakeholder relations and even what was called at the time social and ethical reporting uh, in the um, in the late 1990s uh, in Copenhagen. I was working in a think tank uh, here in Copenhagen called Monday Morning. And uh, and we were organizing a uh, a conference uh, in Denmark uh, on um, on social and ethical uh, reporting, uh, as I said, as it was called uh, at the time. And and we actually together with a group of um, of also then you know leading Danish companies uh, and uh, and some of the uh, big four accounting uh, firms, we developed what was called then the Copenhagen Charter. Ooh, <laughs> for sustainability excellent. reporting, so so that was um that was kind of the the, the starting point and um and then since uh, since then I think I've I've always been really uh, fascinated and engaged by the um uh, the, the the interface you could say between business and society right and and how business uh, can have uh, a major role to play in uh, in addressing uh, key societal challenges but also that it's a um it's of value to the business, right? I think it's it's fundamentally good business to be in tune uh, and responding to your stakeholders' uh, needs and, and concerns and to be relevant uh, to to society. So I have a background, from, you know, studying at um, at the business school uh, in in Copenhagen. So uh, so in that sense, I'm a I'm a I guess I'm a business focused um, tree hugger. <laughs> 
Uh, it's great that it all started on a Monday morning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, again, before we get on to America as a company, can we talk about your your industry, the shipping industry? Um, uh, it's responsible for three percent of global emissions. Um, it will be in the EU emissions trading scheme from as soon as next year. And although MESC itself is a leader, it is traditionally a sector which has not been at the mm -hmm. forefront of sustainability. I think that's fair to say. Please feel free to disagree. But only 7% of companies, shipping companies, have net zero targets. Still a majority don't do sustainability reports even today. What? Why is it a problem? What are the challenges for this sector and, and what will change that? Yeah, uh, that's uh, very true, uh, as you uh, uh, outlined. Um, so uh, shipping is a, a heavy emitting sector and, and also a, a hard to abate one um, because of the long asset cycles uh, in, the, uh, in, in the industry. So, of course, uh, when we invest in a, a large container uh, vessels, these will last uh, 20, 30 years. Um, and so there's a lot of emissions locked in uh, to, to the industry. And of course, that's uh, one of the challenges. I would also say in the past, it has been an industry that has been perhaps a little bit sheltered from the, um, from the requirements from customers. It's traditionally and continues to be very much driven by regulatory requirements. And also uh, having, you would say, on the one hand, also the advantage of being a globally regulated sector through the International Maritime Organization. But then also having that challenge that the International Maritime Organization is a very, um, uh, you know, it's it's a it's very political, obviously, <laughs> in, in institution. But of course, mask in particular because our strategy is, as you outlined by by saying, you know, I think we traditionally we have had our uh, history and our strength in the shipping uh, industry, but we are evolving to become an, a global integrator of container logistics. So we want to work much more end-to-end, -end, much more customer-facing, and, uh, and take more responsibility for our customers' supply chains across not only shipping, but wanting to grow much more our business on land, in warehousing, in, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in trucking, uh, <clears throat> for example. And, uh, and above all, in, in orchestrating our customers' logistics supply chains. And of course, that brings us then much closer to our customers and those uh, needs and expectations that our customers have to actually help them decarbonize their supply chains. So that is the, is a key reason why it has become much more uh, strategically relevant uh, to us. We have been working in MASK for many years to reduce our carbon uh, footprint you say or, or rather to uh, improve our the efficiency um, of our uh, carbon in intensity uh, made a lot of progress uh, on that uh, over the years but um, uh, around 2017 uh, started uh, working on uh, with the realization that um, just continuing to improve efficiency was never going to actually get us to zero and uh, and with the adoption, of course, of the Paris Agreement, it was clear that this is, was the direction the world was was aiming, and shipping as an industry could not afford to be left behind. Um, so uh, so we uh, actually then in 2018 set that first net zero target, uh, being a target back then to be net zero in 2050, 
and covering only our shipping operations at the time. Um, and, and we actually saw it as kind of a moonshot, right? Because we, we did not know, we were also uh, uh, open in saying at the time, we, we actually did not know exactly how we were going to get to zero, but we just knew it had to be done. Um, and the really interesting thing was that it actually, uh, we found that we were able to move quicker than we had anticipated. And um, one of the first things that we, uh, that we did was to find, uh, to identify what are the fuels uh, that we need, because that is the key lever um, of the green transition for shipping, is then really to add to, in addition to the efficiency focus, we need to transition to green fuels um, for shipping. Because of course, it's the, uh, it's the use of fossil fuels, which is by far the major driver of our greenhouse gas footprint today. Uh, and uh, and we actually found uh, relatively quickly that fuels uh, the the technology exists because we are able to use uh, methanol. Um, we're able to design uh, together with our suppliers uh, a, a vessel, container vessel that can sail on methanol. And uh, we've actually ordered nineteen ships by now. You mentioned thirteen, yeah. but actually by now nineteen. I think one of the interesting things is that you found that you can use methanol, but there's not enough methanol in the world exactly. that you need. And so you've actually invested uh, in in uh, creating more ethanol, more synthetic uh, green fuels. That's quite a bold step. Tell us a bit about what was in your thinking when you chose to do that and how you've had the courage and, and the cost to invest in that. Yes, so that's the uh, that's the key next step. Um, but then we there was this chicken and egg dilemma because we saw that we could not get uh, anyone to uh, to invest in or to build the, the the vessels if the fuel did, did not exist, and we could not get people to invest in scaling up fuel production capacity uh, if the vessels did not exist. So that's why we what we first did was to say, uh, okay, we will commit to investing in the vessel. And so we uh, went out and made the, uh, uh, the announcement uh, and that was already in 2021 um, for the first uh, relatively small uh, vessel, uh, which is actually going to be uh, arriving later this year uh, already. So we will have the first uh, green methanol vessel uh, operating uh, later in 2023. And then in 2022, uh, we uh, made the uh, the announcements for the uh, the investments in the large uh, ocean-going container vessels, 16 and 17,000 TU vessels that will be coming in 24 and 25. But so with that, that was also a breakthrough, right? And and of course we can do that because we are a leader. Just for the vessels that we have uh, ordered now, we need. Uh, 30 million tons of, uh, of green methanol uh, per year by, uh, by 2030. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is much, much, much more uh, than, than the global uh, capacity or the global uh, volume that's available uh, today. So it's critical that, uh, that we are also then taking a role as, a, uh, as an off-taker uh, of the green methanol and really encouraging, incentivizing the, uh, as I said, the scale-up. Indeed, I think 
the the lesson for many industries not just the shipping industry is uh getting involved in the energy production and in the renewable energy yes. production uh, that comes from that so I, it's a really interesting case example now as you know the new climate institute actually analyzes and rates companies on their net zero plans and uh fortunately for you they've rated you uh very highly um and i'm sure many of our frankly speaking listeners who are uh struggling with with net zero plans and want to make them real and authentic um will want to learn from that uh, and let's actually use the word integrity because that's the word the new climate institute use about about you and the French novelist Jean Giraudoux first said sincerity is the key to success um once you can fake that you've got it made uh so there's a lot of people out there as well who think that in the ESG world we're all faking it uh but the serious point is that you've been rated as not faking it and having genuine in integrity and you've even you've, you're doing carbon offsetting but you're not counting that against your climate target you're choosing not to which is really fantastically interesting and also when you first um established your net zero uh um plan uh you were reporting a certain degree of uh, carbon emissions you then discovered the following year a greater number and instead of hiding that you just went out there and said no we've got the calculation wrong now i'm sure there were tough discussions in the company about both of those things but nevertheless somehow you've achieved it so um the simple question is how can you have integrity <laughs> you have a very simple uh, question we don't want to be um seen to be of you know not having integrity uh in the work uh, that we do uh that's a key point um it's also important to us uh the perspective of you know being able to have a uh, a strategy uh, a a roadmap and reporting of high integrity is also important to us from a commercial perspective because these are also products that we are going out and uh, and selling to our customers so we also from that perspective it's a it's a commercial and strategic value to us and um, we recognize the risk, you could say, of, uh, of, of uh, we don't want to be seen to be um, involved in any kind of greenwashing, uh, for example. And, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why it, it is important to us uh, to, uh, to make sure that we can um, uh, communicate that we are aligned with a 1.5 degree target, that we are also aligned to external benchmarks, the uh, science-based target initiative, which we hope that we will be able to get the validation of our, uh, of our target uh, this year. Yeah, so the external you know, benchmark and credibility uh, is important uh, for us uh, to get that, that stamp. But as I said, it's also the, the fact that we believe it's our uh it is also the proposition that we bring to the market right to our to our customers um that we uh, that we want to have a, a solid footing uh for that so for example uh one of the things that has uh, uh, then increased our footprint compared to last year's uh, uh report <clears throat> is that we are able to include the uh, uh emissions from the uh, sale of containers uh, we have a business unit called most container industry 
that actually, you know, we uh, get uh, refrigerated containers from them, but they also sell to to other uh, shipping uh, lines. And of course, these require electricity during their lifetime. So there is, and there are, you know, they're quite high emissions uh, connected to the use phase uh, of these uh, containers, and um, and and that has now been incorporated, which drives up the um, uh, the uh, the emissions uh, footprint. Um, but that's one example. There's other uh, elements and other ways we have improved it. But it's just to say also that I think the scope three calculations for most companies are an area where it, it is continually evolving, right? Our understanding of how we can better capture some of these um, emissions which occur outside our uh, own uh, uh, gates, uh, if you will, right? And, and I think the example that you've given, though, is that you've been prepared to increase your calculations yes. because that's yeah. what you found and you've had yeah. the courage and the honesty honesty yes. to do that and i think that's that's the message i, I think many of the challenges the the or the the drivers that you gave in that answer though would be true to other companies as well uh and what i observed from the outside knowing you over several years as well as the company i think mask obviously you're an industry leader in, in in every sense and so there's more people that look at you i think that is one of the drivers as well uh but you've also been prepared to be out there you do engage in dialogues you do engage in initiatives you're willing to 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 expose yourself uh you've done it over a longer period and i think that's that's also potentially a driver for mass and also there's something about denmark you're a very global company mm -hmm. but you are danish based and that's your heritage and the the um uh, the work of the copenhagen business center the danish institute for human rights these have been groundbreaking um organizations and the businesses working with them over many years internationally uh so i think there's some combination there but there's a lot of humility i think in your your answer but i you know i i do um think that that there are some other routes as well to 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 your success one of the other things you've done as a company is to call for a carbon tax you know yes. most companies most of the time argue against taxes <laughs> and going back to your very first answer about the international maritime organization mm -hmm. you've said they should have a carbon levy and yes. uh, that you want there to be a, a level playing field in terms of different fuel uses and uh um uh, uh, uh again there'll be many company representatives listening to this podcast who will gasp and say calling for more taxes so why have you done that and um uh share why that's right for yes. mask yeah it, yes and and yeah in in some i completely understand that in some ways it, it it may seem counterintuitive for for companies to say um we would actually welcome a uh a, a levy but it's um fundamentally it's about creating a level playing field right and uh, and we can see in our the strategy and the roadmap that we have developed uh, for decarbonization, there's much that we can do ourselves, as I've mentioned, for example, the investments in uh, investments in technology, uh, etc. Um, but uh, but we cannot still do it all by ourselves. Uh, and uh, and at the end of the day, there will continue to be a price difference, especially when we look at you know these new uh, innovative green uh, fuels like green methanol e-methanol uh, and other uh, technologies that are coming um 
it will be more expensive, especially in the beginning before it is, uh, you know, scaled up. <clears throat> and um, and having a, a, a levy or, you know, carbon uh, tax, actually, even though we're a little cautious to um, call it that in the political context, but, but a levy um, on shipping uh, would then level the playing field because for customers then it would create that uh, equal uh, uh, choice, right? So it would not be do I pay extra for a for a green uh, service uh, versus a versus a black service. So that would that would be a very strong uh, signal in a way that um, regulators could could very much support the development uh, of the green transition in shipping and by creating that level playing field. And then what we've also suggested, and this is of course some of the discussions that are ongoing in the IMO at the moment, is that we also see that there's an opportunity for the proceeds of that levy uh, to actually uh, go back, not to the industry, but to uh, to actually be uh, going to developing emerging uh, countries uh, to support them in uh, the, the their green uh, transition. And I think that's that's an important piece linking into the the issue of just transition, the the uh, opportunity that there is also for uh, countries in the uh, in the global uh, south to actually um, uh, develop industries and develop jobs and uh, and and livelihoods uh, in Africa and in, in India and other uh, South America as well. Um, that. Um, that can also benefit the populations uh, in a broader sense. Well, um, uh, I just think many business leaders listening, making the case for carbon taxes, uh, that's a very notable position that you've taken. And uh, now uh, you talked about politics earlier. You were in the European Parliament recently talking yes. with MEPs and you were talking about Europe's plan for uh, uh, rules on due diligence, the corporate sustainability due diligence directive. What what were you saying? It was interesting because I think there was uh, a, a recognition on behalf on behalf of the parliamentarians that it would really benefit them to also have better insight into what this actually looks like um, in practice in companies. Uh, it is a really important uh, debate uh, at the moment, and 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 the key pillar, I would say, also of uh, Europe's ambitions, but also uh, more widely in terms of all the work that we, or the development that we see at the moment on developing um, greater standardization of how companies work on sustainability. And, uh, and, and a lot of attention uh, in the past few years has been on ESG, on uh, reporting standards. But uh, sustainability due diligence, you could say, is um, uh, perhaps the, the 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 counterpart to that in terms of how you actually manage uh, risks, right? Uh, across not only within the company itself, but importantly across value chains. Um, and uh, and so the two actually, uh, in that sense, go uh, go go hand in in hand. Um, but um, but in a wider, I would say political policy uh, sense, it is also crucial that um, that we are able to uh, have strong foundation for ensuring uh, the sustainability of global trade uh, going forward. Right? There's a lot of uh, debate around, uh, you know, I think it's, it's clear that 
people recognize that uh, that global trade has tremendous uh, potential to benefit countries to uh, 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 reduce poverty, to enable livelihoods, economic development. But there's also some potential risks, uh, right? Uh, if uh, uh, if standards uh, are not upheld of responsible business conduct, and so. Uh, we also, from our side, fully support the need to ensure that uh, that uh, multinational companies do live up to international uh, standards and requirements for uh, for responsible business conduct. Uh, you know, how do we ensure that that the 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 rules that are developed that they actually are uh, having a positive uh, impact, improving social and environmental uh, conditions uh, for suppliers uh, in, or in value chains around the world? Um, that we also align with international standards, with the UN guiding principles, that we, again, don't put in place different uh, standards, but align to what is already there, in which we as MASC and many other uh, global companies are already working uh, with in our, uh, in our work on, on human rights uh, in particular. Uh, and, uh, and finally, that we can uh, continue to to take a risk-based approach uh, in our work in the value chains so that um, that it's also uh, our responsibility, you could say, and, and that we are held accountable also for uh, uh, ensuring that we understand where the key risks are in our value chain and, uh, and that we're addressing them. We're nearly at time, but it was on that last answer. I, I want to ask a last question which is uh, your company started with a, a single steamship in about 1902. Yes. And so you've driven that prosperity, particularly since the Second World War, is international trade and the growth of international trade, yes. which has led to you being such a successful company, and you could argue vice versa. Um, but there are some critics out there that say we trade too much, that, mm -hmm. that you know, the food miles movement and so on that say too much stuff gets transported round and round the world and there should be more local self-sufficiency and that ultimately the world trade system is unsustainable. But of course, that would challenge your very fundamental business model. So you're not going to agree with that, I, I, I suspect. But how would you, how would you answer those critics about how globalization, international trade, can continue to deliver the results in terms of prosperity, but can do so in a sustainable way. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand where you where you're coming from, and of course, uh, I mean, you're you're also absolutely right. I would I would not support the uh, the, the argument, uh, but um, but as I was saying before, I, I think it all is also important to recognize that while I do think it is, it is completely you know it is a fact as multiple. Uh, research and studies that show that global trade does drive positive uh, benefits in terms of uh, enabling um, uh, companies, uh, people to, uh, to trade uh, with each other to access uh, uh, global uh, markets. But it's so important also to ensure that, that, those, that the benefits are distributed in uh, societies. And of course, that is... Um, where that there can be a challenge. So, and that is where it also becomes uh, very much a political uh, issue. Uh, and again, not one that Maska as such uh, can, um, 
uh, or our individual customers can um, solve by our by ourselves. Um, but uh, one that where we're working, for example, as I mentioned before, and engaging also in the in the debates around the need for, for example, sustainability due diligence to ensure that that global supply chains uh, are managed with a, a high standard of responsible business conduct. Um, and that we also uh, play our, our part, our role in, in, in supporting uh, that. And I think it, it is important to ensure the continued legitimacy, as you say, also to counter some of these concerns um, that there are in particular probably in, in, in Europe and, uh, and maybe some places in North America as well, uh, of the whether global trade is sustainable. But I think the the absolute key contribution that we see that we can have there is to ensure that global trade can be um, decarbonized as well, right? And and as I said, we've we've set that goal now to to do so before 2040, so um, 17 years from now. But um, but in the meantime, also. As I said, also working on uh, on ensuring also not just the the climate footprint, but also the social uh, and uh, and wider uh, governance footprint uh, of uh, of trade uh, should also be uh, be addressed. And that's absolutely what sustainable development is about, and that's exactly. a great example that you mm-hmm. you talk about, Lena. Thank you so much. I think we have come to the end of our time in this podcast, but we'd like to invite all of our audience to tell us what you think the main sustainability uh, issues are arising out of what Lena has said. Send us your feedback to franklyspeaking at franklybold.org. And please also share this conversation. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's responsible companies section on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you again to Lena. And to all of you for joining us, do join us next time and goodbye.